This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we will compare the stories of the tobacco and oil industries. In the 1990s, tobacco company documents leaked to the news media proved for the first time that cigarette makers knew their products are addictive and cause cancer. The documents also demonstrated that the companies waged a concerted campaign to cover up and distort the science of smoking. When the American public realized tobacco companies lied to them, The companies faced such political and legal opposition, they agreed to pay $200 billion in penalties over 25 years. The companies also agreed to limitations on their advertising, sponsorship, and lobbying activities. A similar narrative is unfolding in the oil industry today. The Los Angeles Times and Inside Climate News reported recently that scientists at ExxonMobil studied global warming as far back as the 1970s. One company scientist told an industry conference in 1991 that melting tundra and sea ice would reduce the cost of exploring for oil in the seas of Alaska. At the same time that it was planning a strategy to take advantage of a warmer world, the company waged a PR campaign denying that burning fossil fuels was heating the planet. Over the next hour, we will revisit the tobacco wars of the 1990s and explore how they are similar or not to the battles today over fossil fuels. We have four guests on the program today who played pivotal roles in both stories. Lowell Bergman is a professor at the UC Berkeley School of Journalism. He earned a Pulitzer Prize and many other awards as an investigative journalist working for CBS News, The New York Times, and Frontline. As a producer for 60 Minutes, he investigated the tobacco industry. Stan Glanz is director of the Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education at the University of California, San Francisco often called the Ralph Nader of the anti-smoking movement. He's an advocate for non-smokers' rights and public health policies to reduce smoking. He's the author of four books, including Tobacco War, Inside the California Battles. Ken Kimmel is president of the Union of Concerned Scientists. He's an attorney with extensive experience in private practice and public service. He worked in the executive office of Massachusetts Governor Patrick Duvall and also headed the Massachusetts Department of the Environmental Protection. The Union of Concerned Scientists recently published the Climate Deception Dossiers on the PR and lobbying activities of fossil fuel companies. Bill Riley was administrator of the U.S. EPA under the first President Bush. He held that position during the Exxon Valdez oil spill. He later joined the board of the oil company ConocoPhillips. After the BP oil debacle in the Gulf of Mexico, President Obama appointed him as the Republican co-chair of the National Commission that investigated the deadly disaster. He's currently a senior advisor to TPG Capital and a member of our own Climate One Advisory Council. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, Stan Gans, let's begin with you. Take us back to, say, the 80s when people started to be more concerned about the health impacts of tobacco and the social license and the attitude towards smoking started to change from when the era of Mad Men, lots of people smoked. 
Right. Well, the public concern over the issues of tobacco really started to appear way back in the 1950s when Reader's Digest published an article called Cancer by the Carton. And, and there was tremendous public concern. States were talking about banning cigarette advertising. There were demands to have Congress regulate the tobacco industry. And the tobacco companies responded to the scientific evidence that smoking was causing cancer by mounting a public relations campaign. And they realized that they couldn't really contest the evidence linking cancer and smoking, so they came up with the, the, the idea of creating doubt. And there's a very famous document in the, in the tobacco industry document saying doubt is our product. Because all they had to do was get people confused about it, and by claiming that the issue wasn't proven, that provided cover for politicians to leave them alone, and it helped smokers rationalize their continued smoking. And that was really the beginning of a massive conspiracy that, that, that actually continues to this day. Uh, when President Clinton was uh, president, the Department of Justice actually brought a racketeering lawsuit against the tobacco industry for fraud, based in large part on the deception documented in the tobacco documents. Because if you go way back to the 50s, at the same time they were saying to the public, you know, we, we, we don't know what's, whether smoking causes cancer or not. Their own scientists internally were saying smoking causes cancer. Now, they were careful to avoid the word cancer. They used the word zephyr. But it was very, very similar to what you described in the introduction to where the scientists inside the oil industry were saying, well, this is going on and we need to use it for our business planning while at a time that the oil industry was contesting the evidence publicly. And you find over and over and over again in the tobacco documents where the research the companies were doing inside the companies was very high-quality research, often 30 or 40 years ahead of what the mainstream science was saying. They understood that smoking caused cancer in the 50s. They understood that nicotine was addictive in the 60s. It wasn't until the late, till 1988, that the Surgeon General finally said nicotine was an addictive drug. So when I look at these two areas, I see tremendous parallels, in part because a lot of the same people and companies that the tobacco companies hired to create doubt and confusion about the dangers of smoking subsequently went to work for the petrochemical companies to do the same thing. And we'll get into that. Uh, Lowell Bergman, you came into this uh, in the early 90s. Uh, so tell us how you got to meet Jeffrey Wigand, and then we're going to play a little clip of that, of that movie. Um, some documents landed on my doorstep in Berkeley, where I live, and uh, I was working for 60 Minutes. I'd been there by that point for about a decade. And um, they were about a tobacco, uh, Philip Morris, and they were headlined Pro uh, Project Hamlet, uh, to burn or not to burn. And it was about uh, fire ca fires caused by cigarettes, which had killed, in that year, it killed 7,000 people and 300 children in the United States. And a project that they had uh, to develop a Marlboro Light that tasted like, acted like a regular Marlboro Light. And it was extensive... Uh, uh, experimentation and, and uh, taste groups and went on for years and finally the, it, it appeared that the attorneys came in, stamped it all attorney-client privilege and took, and took all the research back out of the research part of Philip Morris. My problem at the time was that uh, CBS, where I worked, had just been sued in 1993 by the Brown <coughs> Tobacco Company for a commentary by a local, uh, a local personality on its Chicago station. 
and had lost the largest libel judgment in the history of the United States because he had equated the tobacco industry with the Nazis and with Goebbels. Um, and so uh, to go forward, I knew, and they were very litigious, so they spent $600 million a year in those days on lawyers. And so we knew you could get sued if you did something about tobacco industry, not to mention that the owner and CEO of CBS at the time, Larry Tisch, owned Lorillar Tobacco. So, <laughs> to, so to put those all together, we went in search of some independent expert who could read the documents so we could show that those documents actually independently of our judgment were substantively true, and this is what they were actually doing. And it was at that moment that uh, uh, a source of mine uh, came forward and told, had called me and said, I've talked to a guy who was on the Tobacco Fire Safe uh, Congressional Commission who was from Brown and Williamson Tobacco, and he just got fired, and he says he'll talk to you. And that was the beginning of a dance that took about six months before he agreed to meet with me. And Jeffrey Wigand becomes a key character. He's, he's a whistleblower, a uh, rare thing in Fortune 500 companies. Uh, and then so you started developing some stories with Jeffrey Wigand. Well, I should say I, I, had, I had the experience of putting uh, CIA agents on camera, arms dealers, a mafioso, but never a fiduciary officer of a Fortune 500 company. That's the rarest character to see come out in public and talk. And I must say, in the Los Angeles Times series that was done with Columbia University, what was interesting to me is that when I read it was the uh, number of Exxon uh, scientists and others who were openly talking. So that's, there's a big change from what was going on in tobacco. So let's watch. This is a, a clip we have of Jeffrey Wigand. It's a key moment in this, uh, the film The Insider in which uh, Al Pacino plays uh, Lowell Bergman and uh, Christopher Plummer plays Mike Wallace and uh, Russell Crowe plays uh, Jeffrey Wigand, who's the whistleblower. And this is a, a scene we'll show from that, that film. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. I believe Mr. Sandifer purged himself because I watched those testimonies very carefully. No, all of us did. I mean, there was this whole line of people, whole line of CEOs up there, all swearing. Part of the reason I'm here is that I felt that their representation clearly misstated what is common language within the company. We are in the nicotine delivery business. There's extensive use of this technology known as ammonia chemistry. It allows for the nicotine to be more rapidly absorbed in the lung and therefore affect the brain and central nervous system. And that's what cigarettes are for, delivery device for nicotine. So that's uh, from The Insider with Russell Crowe and Al Pacino and Christopher Plummer. Uh, so, Loberman, tell us the significance of that revelation, having that character go on camera. Uh, it's different to have, to have documents than have an actual whistleblower and a person that'll say that. Well, the, the documents are documents. And, and as a, a famous lawyer once said, the documents don't lie and the documents don't go away. But the problem was, what do they really believe inside the tobacco industry? What do they really talk about when they get together? And so he was unique. There had never been a, anybody in, in the tobacco industry, and as far as I had researched, other than John DeLorean from General Motors, any uh, former executive who is at a vice presidential level of a major corporation to step forward and actually talk about what they, uh, what, what they say to each other when something is obviously true. So that was... That was his significance. I have to say, though, that tobacco, as it says in the, it, we said in the 60 Minutes segment when it finally ran, and in general, is, a, is a, a product that if you use it, will kill you, if you use it as directed. And, and fossil fuels 
don't necessarily kill you in and of themselves. So we have a diff- there's a different scale, a different kind of thing going on here. Uh, key point there, Ken Kimmel. Uh, everyone here listening to this in this room, listening to this, used fossil fuels today. It makes our life, uh, you know, enables modern life in a way that's very different than tobacco. Yet there are some similarities between uh, the tobacco episode and, and tactics and players. So tell us about that. Um, the similarities in the Dow. Sure. There are some differences, but there's some similarities. And one thing to point out is uh, some of the documents that you gentlemen are referring to emerged after a lot of litigation and discovery processes. Those have not yet happened for the fossil fuel industry. But despite that, what we have already discovered is, I would say, fairly damning. Um, and if I could, let me peel back the onion a little bit so people can see what actually happened and, and judge for themselves how closely similar it is to what happened with tobacco. So uh, last summer, as, as Greg pointed out, we put out a publication, UCS, called the Climate Deception Dossiers. Uh, and just to give you a feel for, for some of the things that are in there... Um, The story starts a long time ago, but I'll start it in 1995 when the uh, petroleum companies formed a global climate coalition to provide kind of a unified response to the discussions that were ongoing about climate change and what to do about it. And the first thing they did actually was to hire their own scientific team to give them advice on climate change. And that team was headed by the chief scientist of Mobile, and the memo that was provided to the global climate Uh, coalition said as follows. The scientific basis for the greenhouse effect and the potential impact of human emissions of greenhouse gases such as CO2 on climate is well established and cannot be denied. Fast forward three years, uh, the Kyoto Protocol has now been uh, negotiated and uh, pending before the United States Senate is, is to ratify the treaty. Um, And the American Petroleum Institute, funded by the same people who were in this global climate coalition, uh, created a global science communication team. Some of the people who were on that team were people who worked for the tobacco industry. Um, And here's what they said their goal was. Victory will be achieved when average citizens understand, and understand is in quotes, uncertainties in climate science, Recognition of uncertainties becomes part of the conventional wisdom. They go on to say, and this sounds a little bit like Spectre from the James Bond movie, unless climate change becomes a non-issue, meaning that the Kyoto Kyoto proposals are defeated and there are no further initiatives to thwart the threat of climate change, there may be no moment when we can declare victory for our efforts. And in that memo, they detail uh, a public relations strategy, which really has two prongs. One is a great deal of public announcements and op-eds and advertisements trying to claim that there's doubt about climate science. And if you go back in time, you'll see a lot of those types of publications in the late 90s and and the 2000s. Ironically, uh, when they say publicly that climate science is uncertain, Uh, it turns out that they knew how to read the advice of their chief scientists. They were actually following their scientists' advice about climate change when it came to their own investment decisions about things like offshore oil platforms and pipelines that might freeze in the tundra and and warm up due to to climate change. So so they perfectly understood this, uh, and yet they denied it publicly, and they launched a campaign to cultivate and fund contrarian scientists. One of those scientists is a guy named Willie Soon, 
whose theory is that solar variability is what causes climate change. Interestingly, that 1995 memo itself said that that theory uh, was not valid and couldn't account for climate change. But Mr. Soon got funded to the tune of $1.2 million over a 10-year period, and he had a very interesting funding arrangement. He worked for the Smithsonian, and the deal for his funding was twofold. The companies that funded him, like ExxonMobil, insisted they get the chance to see his publications before they were made public, and they insisted that the Smithsonian agree not to disclose that ExxonMobil was actually funding his work. So there you have it. Um, you have certain knowledge of, of, of the risks of climate change. You have uh, th- the people themselves saying their goal was to create a campaign to sow doubt and the execution of that. And I guess the uh, point I want to make is that is just the tip of the iceberg. We now have an investigation by the New York Attorney General and the California Attorney General. My prediction is um, a lot more is going to come out, and this conversation will uh, heat up dramatically over time. Bill Riley, you've been on both sides of this as the uh, the country's top environmental officer and also a fiduciary officer at an oil company. How how do you uh, respond to kind of some of these stories um, that you've just heard? Well, one of the priorities that we set at the beginning of my term at EPA was to pay attention to the air problem that hadn't been addressed in any way at all, despite the expenditure of billions of dollars to try to regulate uh, automobiles and factories and utilities and so forth, and that is indoor air. And the Science Advisory Board to EPA was very concerned about that being a source of mortality, morbidity, that were really largely neglected. The most significant uh, implicated problem was smoking. And so I declared, this is my last regulatory uh, call decision, I declared sidestream smoke a Class A carcinogen. And uh, within a very short period of time, you had laws in most of the municipalities in the country that did, in fact, forbid smoking in publicly accessible space and buildings. So that issue... Um, was hard fought. I can recall that it was working its way through the various review bodies at EPA in the uh, midst of the 92 election, and I received a couple of calls telling me how threatening this was to, to the party in uh, five states, and um, the governors who called for me to be uh, dismissed in connection with that decision. But uh, it had an immediate impact. I think we had some difficulty persuading everybody that was true because the confidence interval we had was 90%. Usually EPA's decisions are 95%. The reason we had the difficulty was we couldn't find a control group that didn't have evidence of nicotine and smoking in their systems. We finally found some, um, some nuns. As I recall, in a uh, discalced nuns in, in a convent in, uh, in New Mexico, as I recall, and uh, they were largely free of any infection by cigarettes. But the rest of us, those of us who'd never smoked, didn't really matter. We all have evidence of carrying it. Thinking about the oil industry um, and the... I remember uh, George W. Bush. I did not serve in that administration. I served in the first President Bush administration. He referred to oil as an addiction at one point. And um, I remember thinking that... Uh, well, how do you deal with an addiction? Uh, I'm not aware that we've ever staunched an addiction by cutting off supply 
You've really got to go to demand. You've got to do the things that uh, change the whole attractiveness of it to uh, someone who's buying. The oil company whose board I served on was the only American company whose CEO joined the United States Climate Action Plan. Uh, that's ConocoPhillips. Uh, the other two who joined were both uh, were BP and, uh, and Shell, both foreign companies. And that was a, a group of industry and environmentalists trying to craft a central policy on That's climate. right, uh, okay. come up with a proposal for legislation that would actually, actually regulate carbon and do it with a, with a cap-and-trade program. The Environmental Defense Fund, Natural Resources Defense Council, and others were involved with that. So that's not a company that ever was implicated in, in much of this story other than, other than producing the product. Which, um, which continues to be uh, something they do. I think the prospect that we have right now, and a very important one, there is going to be a review, I think this fall, of the president's proposal commitment of the, of the auto industries to support, too, 54.5 mile per gallon automobile fuel efficiency. Once that goes fully into effect, it will result in more than 2 million barrels a day reduction in American consumption of oil. Uh, That is a hugely important um, decision. Every uh, auto industry, major auto industry and company, except for Volkswagen, has supported it. Uh, Yeah, I would think that they, in their present circumstance, might want to reconsider that decision. They have other fish to fry, presumably. But um, that's hugely important in addressing this entire question. Can I just Jump in on this because I was actually involved. You were at the top on that 1991 EPA report. I was at the bottom. And the, the, that was a tremendously important document because the EPA identifying secondhand smoke as indoor air pollution just changed the way people thought about the problem from a personal health problem to an environmental problem. And it, it did. It just transformed the discussion. And the tobacco companies were absolutely terrified of that report. They brought their lawsuits. They did this and that. But they, they then started a concerted effort to discredit the U.S. EPA. And they created something called the Sound Science Coalition to attack the EPA over the confidence intervals. They're I really teach, good at naming, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, they really are. I mean, I teach statistics, and actually you did use a 95%, but we don't have time to get into that. But the, but the point was that the, the tobacco companies by then knew that they had such low public credibility that they couldn't be publicly identified with this sound science coalition. So they reached out to other industries, to the petrochemical industry, to the pharmaceutical industry, to a whole ra- to the food industry, a whole range of industries that was potentially threatened by science-based regulation to provide cover for the tobacco companies who were calling all the shots. And then these other companies realized that, oh, hey, this is actually a pretty good idea. And the same people who formed the Sound Science Coalition and set up these, you know, the, 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 the denier scientists basically to try to discredit the EPA generally, ended up being going to work, not just for tobacco, but for all these other companies and building the whole science denialist. So these things really do, you know, come together very tightly. Let me, let me pose a question to Lowell, if I might. It's always bothered me. Uh, for, for so long, 
the science has been so clear, as was suggested by uh, your citation of the science that the, mm-hmm. that the uh, ExxonMobil had itself, and yet the way the issue was reported was invariably to give voice to the deniers in every damn article. And that, was, that contributed absolutely to the strategy that they had. There was no doubt, no significant doubt. After three, we'd had 11 National Academies of Science report on this. We'd had... Uh, You're talking uh, about nicotine and cigarettes. Uh, no, I'm, no I'm, I'm sorry. I'm talking about climate change. Called the, uh, the the balance bias that that ninety seven uh, percent of uh, journalists uh, scientists get the same weight in a news article as the three percent who don't. Mm-hmm. Well, be, I, I call it false balance. Okay. It used to be maddening us to, to those of us in the environmental movement that that what we would hear from the scientists was so definitive, and then you'd see an article and there would always be the skeptical person quoted as a serious scientist very often. Most of them were not, as it turned out. But that, that has always bothered me in terms of reporting. And I wondered, it, it obviously is connected to the ethos of reporting, the ethics. and Well, money, money talks. And, and all I can say is that the tobacco industry or, or industries in general, in pursuit of their profit and, their, and, and maintaining their profit and the value of their stock and what they're doing, will spend a huge amount of money to influence what's going on in news organizations. And uh, people listen to the protests of attorneys and others about what's going on. In the tobacco situation, uh, the the industry hired a a public relations specialist who had been a journalist, a man named John Scanlon. He was inside the offices of 60 Minutes arguing directly with management. Uh, and entertained, and he would entertain them in the evening as well, uh, while I was out here in Berkeley. So uh, the fact of the of the relationships that different news organizations have at a certain level, advertising, the advertising dollar, the that model, it may in many ways uh, be possible for some changes to take place because advertising no longer is a major factor in the news industry, or it's diminishing rapidly. So I would say that it shouldn't surprise people that in the established media there is a great influence by what we would call multinational corporations or other people with great wealth and power. You're just joining Look us. Look at for the Republican candidates in the in the current election. Yeah, right? they're getting, so they are doubting climate. They talk about climate change yep. as if it's not not only not true, yes, but are. some kind of conspiracy that people have made yep. this up. Yep. And so. Um, you know, and it's not even just debated, you know, in any way. So I think that I think one of the things that we have to accept is that the way public opinion is made in the United States and most countries is not necessarily rational. And in every one of the Republican debates, you have heard, not heard one word from Fox, CNN, or the others about climate change. Not one single question, even after Paris. If you're just joining us, uh, we're talking about uh, tobacco in the oil industry at Climate One today. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Lowell Bergman, professor at UC Berkeley, Stan Glanz, director of the Center for Tobacco Control Research at UCSF, Ken Kimmel, president of the Union of Concerned Scientists. And we just heard from Bill Riley, who was administrator of the U.S. EPA under the first President Bush. I'd like to go to our uh, lightning round in which we ask uh, a yes or no question to each of our guests to uh, get some quick thinking and make you slightly uncomfortable. Um, uh, Bill Riley, Exxon is a superbly run corporation with high standards of precision and excellence. Yes or no? On safety and environment, yes. 
That's what we learned at, uh, in investigating the uh, oil spill. They were, the, they were uh, considered the best. Lowell Bergman, in the 1999 movie The Insider, Al Pacino plays you as a fierce journalist who's often shouting. Do you often shout like Al Pacino? <laughs> He's also shorter than I am and older. And, and I don't have a blonde wife. Um, so it's a movie. Uh, no, and you don't, you don't shout your boss and, uh, often and remain with a job. <laughs> Bill Riley, Shell Oil has lost a boatload of money searching for oil and natural gas in the Arctic. Yes. Uh, Stan Glantz, scientists who wander into activism risk losing some of their professional credibility in the eyes of their peers and the public. Well, that's certainly what big corporations would like you to think. But I think that when you are a scientist and you know something especially if you're a scientist at a public university, you have an obligation to tell people what you know. That's a no, okay. So science yes, and, that's and activism no. can go together. Ken Kimmel, fracking killed the notion of peak oil. Fracking killed the notion of peak oil? The, the world is awash in oil. Prices are low because oh. there's so much of it. Environmentalists used to sit, run around saying, peak oil, we're going to run out, we've got to get off it. Now there's so much oil, we don't know what to do with it. The answer is no, because it's incomplete. You have to also include uh, the reduction of demand due to the fuel economy standards and other things that are happening. And there's a complicated set of reasons uh, why oil prices have gone down and we're washing them. Fracking is a piece of it, but by no means the whole, the whole thing. Okay, part of it. Uh, Stan Glanz, the war on drugs is a failure. Yes. <laughs> That's easy. Um, so follow up. It is futile to attack the supply of drugs, tobacco, or oil. As long as there is demand, suppliers will satisfy it. Yes or no? Attack. Yes. That's, that's why the California Tobacco Control Program has worked so well. It's focused on making it so people don't want the smoke, the cigarettes. And that's how we should be dealing with marijuana, too, actually. Bill Riley, oil companies learned from the tobacco industry and made their non-disclosure agreements even stronger to foil people like Lowell Bergman. <laughs> it would appear, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ken Kimmel, business leaders unfairly talk about environmentalists as though they are all of one mind, when in fact they are not. True. Environmentalists unfairly talk about oil and coal companies as a monolith, when in fact they are not. Also true. Last one, uh, Bill Riley. You wish that Al Pacino would play you in a movie. <laughs> you know, I'd like to give some serious thought to who should play me in a movie. I, 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 I'll get back to you on that. Okay, well, we have a search underway. Uh, I didn't know he was so short until uh, Lowell said this. We need someone taller to play you. All right, that's the end of our lightning round. How they do? I think they did pretty well. Let's give them a. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. The link between tobacco denial and climate denial is more direct than you might think, as historian Naomi Oreskes points out. In her book Merchants of Doubt, she tells the story of Fred Seitz, a Cold War-era physicist who was hired by R.J. Reynolds' tobacco company to head up a program of what she calls distracting research. So, for example, they would fund research on other causes of lung cancer, the link between asbestos and lung cancer, the link between radon and lung cancer, other causes of heart disease. So it was legitimate research, but its purpose was to cast doubt on the links between the harms of tobacco and um, you know, the scientific evidence. Uh, he did that work 1979 to 1985, and then he founds a think tank 
with a group of other physicists like himself who are also prominent physicists who have risen to positions of power and influence because of work they did in the Cold War. But when the Cold War ends, they turn their attention to climate science. And not just climate science, but to a whole set of environmental issues that are quite familiar to all of us. Acid rain, the ozone hole, the role of pesticides in harming the environment. And they begin to challenge the scientific evidence on all of these issues. And the strategy they use is the strategy that Fred Seitz had developed, working with R.J. Reynolds, to cast doubt on the science, to claim there's no consensus, that we don't really know, and since we don't really know, it would be premature to do anything about it. That's author and historian Naomi Oreskes speaking at Climate One in 2014. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, we've been talking about industry power. Uh, Bill Riley, oil prices are very low. Uh, the industry is cyclical. It's been through lots of boom and bust. But how is the low oil prices right now, unexpectedly low, affecting the industry? Well, you know, my, uh, my discovery as part of the uh, co-chairman of the President's Oil Spill Commission on the spill in the Gulf led me to conclude that uh, one of the problems we saw there was the loss of some of the senior most people and best qualified people the last time the oil price was very low. Uh, People forget it got down into the single digits in the late 90s. Well, the companies did what they do in a cyclical industry. They shed staff. They offered outs to people, and uh, the most capable, those who would have other opportunities, took them. That is happening again. That uh, is happening in all of the companies I'm aware of. They're simply shedding staff. And to the extent that they are senior, experienced practitioners of, uh, of oil and gas exploration and development, I think that's, um, that's a very unfortunate consequence. The companies themselves, by and large, the major ones that we're familiar with, can ride out the storm. But uh, they're then probably going to have to cultivate once the price does rise, if it does, anywhere where it used to be, and I have some doubts about that, a new generation of people who are competent to uh, keep us from experiences like Exxon Valdez and, um, and the BP Macondo spill. Ken Kimmel, some environmentalists think that the oil company's got to be put out of business. Other people, Mary Nichols, head of the California Air Board, says that we need the engineering expertise and, and scientific talent that these energy giants have. What's the Union of Concerned Scientists think that the, should be the, the future for oil companies? To put them out of business or to transition them to something else? Transition them to something else. And really, um, one of the reasons that we are raising these issues about the uh, accountability campaign um, and, and making noise about it and seeking to hold companies responsible is we think, and we're already seeing signs of this happening, um, that this pressure coupled with other economic factors can push them in a, in a better direction. Um, so I think it is still possible for major oil companies to make very, very meaningful changes to their business plan invest in renewable energy, invest in carbon capture and storage, stop the deception, um, and start moving uh, towards, at least for as long as we need fossil fuels, there's great gradations in the carbon footprint of different fuels at a a minimum, really start moving towards um, the the types of fuels that cause the least harm while we still need it. And and in the long run, though, uh, I do believe, and the science tells us this is clear, we have to unaddict ourselves to fossil fuels if we have any hope of meeting the goals that we just agreed to in Paris. 
Your organization also is uh, pushing for uh, investigations of oil companies in California and New York, uh, perhaps using RICO uh, laws, which have been used in, in other cases, as was mentioned earlier. What do you ex- expect to come from that? And is there a kind of is there a deal to be made with oil companies like was made with tobacco companies? I think there is. It's not going to happen right away. I think these investigations got to play out. The tobacco settlements didn't happen right away either. It was after many, many years of people uh, opening the courthouse doors and having them closed in their face, and there was there was a lot going on. But but I do think there is, on the horizon, uh, a global settlement here, which involves uh, the oil companies not just agreeing in principle to a carbon price, but really supporting it in an actual proposal, getting it done, um, putting aside funds to, uh, especially for the most uh, vulnerable countries in the world, preparing, uh, augmenting the climate funds that nations have been pledging for that purpose, um, and again, switching their business to the most low-carbon sources. So I think there is a deal along those lines to be had, but we're, we're a long ways from that right now. Um, and one of the first things that we want to see happen here, and, and it is starting to happen, we, we want these companies to stop fighting every reform tooth and nail and stop funding those legislators who are fighting them. And I do think it's an encouraging sign that uh, Shell and British Petroleum, for example, have both said publicly that they're leaving the group known as ALEC, which is a group that goes all around the country uh, trying to convince state legislators that the reforms that they put in place that are actually working should be repealed. So I think we're starting to see some signs that, that this is starting to, to get some of, it, some of the results we'd hope. I want to roll some tape of, of Shell President Marvin Odom. We, he was here a while back, and I asked him about climate change. Let's hear what Marvin Odom, president of Shell Oil, had to say. Where is your position, Shell's position, on climate change and man-made climate change? Well, this is probably the easiest question you'll ask me all night because it's very clear for us as a company, and that is that climate change is real, um, that humans have an enormous impact on that, and that it requires some sort of action going forward. And what kind of risk does it present for the United States and for Shell as a company? Well, I think if you look at the, uh, at the, the policies that we advocate as a company, so getting outside of our, our direct day-to-day business, working with governments around the world, the, I'd say the number one element of that advocacy is putting a price on carbon. So, Bill Riley, I'd like to ask you, you, I think you know Marvin Odom. Marvin Odom, president of Shell Oil, saying the company wants a price on carbon, and they, they say that quite consistently publicly no. now. Yet they're part of organizations, American Petroleum Institute, which work pretty hard to make sure that doesn't happen. I don't think they're major players at American Petroleum Institute, from my experience. But it's true that they have come out for a price on carbon. They have a $75 virtual price, shadow price. Uh, I think Exxon has a bigger one. A company I was associated with had a $25 price um, many years ago. So uh, that's going in the right direction. What that means is when they make an investment, they have to assume that there will be a tax of that amount and that the investment will still return positive uh, interest to them. So they're getting ready for it, clearly. In fact, one of the interesting things to me is uh, how much farther the oil industry is, particularly those companies, than the Congress in recognizing the need to impute a carbon price. Ken Kimmel, uh, your thoughts on that? Oil companies getting ready and, and how they're 
actually further ahead than, than some of the politicians. So we are aware of the shadow price. We think that's a positive development. But this is, again, one of those tricky things. Um, ExxonMobil also says that it favors carbon pricing. And if you go to its website, you'll see that. We just put out a report two days ago, though, that uh, tracked the votes of various legislators who voted on actual carbon tax, revenue-neutral carbon tax proposals, which is what ExxonMobil says it wants. And it turns out that uh, about 80% of the legislators who voted no to those proposals are getting campaign contributions from ExxonMobil. So it just doesn't feel like they're at a stage where they're putting their resources behind what they say. And one has to wonder, um, they, because they are such an effective lobbying group, if they really wanted a carbon t- price, you would think they'd be able to make some progress in the Congress getting one with all the resources they have to bear. So I, I do think, and again, this is important not to talk about all these companies as if they're one. I think there's important distinctions. Um, I think some mean it more than others, but um, I do believe that these companies do stand in the way of some of the policies that they say on their websites they favor, and that's yeah, a big yeah, problem. Yeah, this is Stand another glass. similarity to the tobacco companies because they've said for years publicly we don't want kids to smoke, but when you look in their documents at the marketing, they're figuring that it's like the teenager is the future of our industry. And and I think that, I mean, I agree with Lowell that, that the petrochemical industry is different from tobacco. If we could snap our fingers and be rid of tobacco, that would be great. We, we, we need the energy industry. But the one thing they have in common is that they're both trying to maximize profits in the short run. And by doing that, they fight regulation. And so the company, and it's just like the same thing. The tobacco companies, if you look at their websites, they're all for health. They're now admitting smoking causes disease, partially because a federal court ordered them to admit it. But the but you then have to look at like what they actually do. And from as I watch what's going on in in the in the climate debate, I still see deniers out there. I still see them being funded by the petrochemical industry, and I still see the industry doing everything they can in terms of their actual political actions to slow progress. And, you know, one I think the lawsuits that are being talked about now by a couple of the state attorneys general are very, very important because those lawsuits and the discovery in those lawsuits is really what's changed the tobacco debate. And I think one of the real heroes in the tobacco story was Skip Humphrey, who was the attorney general of Minnesota, who who did huge amounts of discovery um, during the Minnesota lawsuit against the tobacco industry. And Skip used to say to me, the most important thing to come out of this litigation is the truth. And as part of the Minnesota settlement, they forced about 30 million pages of internal industry documents into the public domain. They're all sitting on a website at UCSF now. And that created the expectation in tobacco litigation that any documents that were produced would be made public. And we're up to almost 90 million pages now. And that was very unusual. Normally in litigation, when a case settles, all the discovery is destroyed. And I think it's tremendously important 
to establish an expectation with the state attorneys general who are moving against the energy companies to publicly go on record saying that if there is a settlement, those documents will be made available to the public. And I mean, I would love to put them on our website at UCSF when the time comes. Lowell Bergman? Yeah, but I think that you, you have to uh, come back to your point about the news media and, and the coverage of the issue. Think about how many hours of public television have you seen in the la in, on any program in the last decade about the problem of not only climate change, but of the energy industry or the energy question. Um, the idea, for example, after 9-11, um, there was some reporting that we did get to do about Saudi Arabia and the problem that we are, that Saudi Arabia, 15 of the 19 hijackers came from Saudi Arabia, that Saudi Arabia is being supported by our consumption of oil. And that issue of what's going on in the Middle East and what oil, the role that oil plays in all of that that's going on, there's very little in the public media, in the, new, in the broadcasting industry in general, and in print, that gets out to a large number of people. And on the radio, you have deniers. So you have a fundamental media problem, and I don't think that, that politic politicians or others have addressed that directly. People who work in the industry have a hard time selling a story that has such a serious question and that will jeopardize potentially the profits of the organization they work for. Lowell Bergman is a professor of investigative journalism at UC Berkeley. Our other guest today at Climate One is Stan Glanz, director of the Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education at the University of California, San Francisco. Ken Kimmel's president of the Union of Concerned Scientists. And Bill Riley was administrator of the US EPA under the first President Bush. I'm Greg Dalton. You can join the conversation using our Twitter handle at Climate One. Let's turn to our audience questions. We're talking about the oil industry and the tobacco industry at Climate One. Welcome. Hi, my name is Paula Pasimino. I actually have asked a question before, but I appreciate the chance to do so again. Um, as someone who works at an organization that's been targeted specifically by an oil company using the RICO law to try to suppress our free speech, that's Chevron and Amazon Watch, I wonder if you guys could talk about <laughs> some of the harsher, dirtier tactics you see these companies getting ready to and, and are likely to employ against people, individuals, organizations, etc., even the government, um, to try to suppress the story that they don't want told. Thank you. Uh, Stan Glanz, some of the, the hardball? Oh, yeah. They, they've sued the University of California twice, trying to shut our work down. UC stuck up to them and won. Uh, I just had another, yet another Freedom of Information Act request put in about our research. So they're, they're there. Just Google me. And you'll find out what a terrible person I am. Uh, and no, these are people who, I mean, when you talk about smoking or, whether, or when you talk about moving away from traditional fossil fuels, every little success, every little, you know, every cigarette that isn't smoked, we view as a public health success. That's money out of the pocket of some big cigarette company. And there's no question that, that the work we've done and others has cost the tobacco companies, you know, tens of billions of dollars in lost sales. And I think if, as they're forced to move away from, from traditional fossil fuels into renewable energy, they're going to be less profitable, and they're not going to like that. And, and if they would be more profitable doing it, we wouldn't be having this conversation because they would have done it. And so they're going to do everything they can to fight this change because their goal in the end, they're not philanthropies. They're out to make money. Lowell Bergman, so, just, just quickly to answer your question, 
if you if you take on a major corporate interest or people of great wealth as a journalist you should expect that you're going to get pushback they'll have lawyers they'll look at everything you do and occasionally they'll be they'll even sue or more things will happen uh, we do have another precedent at the university of california we had a panel a year and a half ago at our program and our annual symposium where a short seller from New York, Jim Chanos, who was part of a story we were doing about Macau and American casino companies operating there, he made some statements, uh, statements which he was sued for defamation for what he said in an academic conference at the University of California. It's the first time in the history of the state. Steve Wynn sued him for libel. Now, luckily, in California, we have slap statutes, and the suit was summarily dismissed twice, and Wynn will have to pay a half a million dollars in legal fees of, the, of Mr. Chanos defending himself because he picked the wrong person. But that kind of uh, retaliation, that kind of activity is, is pretty normal in our business and one of the reasons people are hesitant to publish and get into these areas, especially if you're going to be alleging, for instance, RICO violations or some kind of conspiracy, and, and you'll have to stand up and defend it. Bill you Riley? Know, I have had experiences uh, where scientists gave me advice quietly about uh, the efficacy or, or bad effects of a pesticide or chemical or something of that sort, and then um, declined to say publicly right. later what they had advised me to do. Right. And I would talk to them about it. And more than once they said, look, it's not worth it. You know, uh, you'll get quoted out of context. You'll be uh, understood to be uh, much simpler than the, the explanation you give and that sort of thing. And we also made a decision. I made a decision once to, to um, get into looking seriously at lead and its impact on health and the environment. <laughs> I've been involved there was in a one. There was a very distinguished, I thought, uh, researcher who uh, basically was associated and drove that subject who nearly was destroyed his career. Mm. And I remember uh, when I was going up to the Hill to defend that decision and explain it to the Congress, uh, I proposed that he go with me. And I remember staff said, uh, do you really want to sit next to him after all the things that have been said about him? And I said, I think particularly because he's very important to the decision in his research. So people do pay a price. There's no question they pay, scientists pay a price. And it does, I think, very often cause them to think, well, I'd just as soon stay out of it if it's hugely provocative and controversial. <laughs> Let's go to our next audience question. We're talking about the oil industry and the tobacco industry at Climate One. Hi, my name is Wayne Roth. Uh, uh, this is directed to Mr. Kimmel. Many years ago, you put out a little paper uh, saying that uh, the Sierra snowpack would possibly reduce to 5% by 2090, somewhere in that neighborhood. And last year, the Sierra snowpack was at 5%. And although we've had an El Nino event uh, recently, I heard Peter Glick mention that uh, actually the Sierra snowpack is now below normal because of the last six or seven, ten days of hot weather. Can so you, you comment, and can the whole panel comment, on the difficulty of getting people to understand how quickly climate change is becoming more and more disastrous and, and the effects, how they will get worse quickly? And we have maybe a decade to get off of fossil fuels. So all of this talk about, well, oil companies will maybe get off and maybe not. This addiction that, that uh, Greg mentioned or that someone else mentioned, uh, we don't end this addiction, it's going to end us. Thank you. Ken Kimmel. Yeah, well, your question said a lot there. Um, for, first of all, you're absolutely right that one of the 
most scary things about climate change is the way the early modeling is being validated, except the effects are happening much more severely and much more quickly than those models actually predicted. Um, a, a second element of, of the scary nature of it is the synergistic effects and the fact that climate change begets more emissions, it begets more climate change. So all of that's extremely scary. I mean, I do, I would say this. I, I think that groups like ours and many others and also uh, a continued emphasis with journalists on, on attacking this notion of false balance and, and not having, you know, the climate denier debate the, the actual climate scientist. It is making a difference. If you look at public opinion polling, um, the majority of people, of the people who, who believe that climate science is a serious problem and needs to get addressed is going up. Um, it's especially going up um, amongst young people, um, even Republican voters under 40, about two-thirds of them say they accept the science and they think less of candidates who deny it. So, so this is changing. Um, but again, the problem is the political system is not changing nearly fast enough to, to get us to where we need to be. And that, to me, is what is so sad and tragic about the, the examples of deception that I talked about, which are 20 years old. Because you can imagine that if that didn't all happen, if public opinion didn't get so polarized, we might have actually made some real progress and we wouldn't be in a position now where we are running out of time and all the things that we need to do to address climate change are now much more expensive. And that's the real tragedy. I mean, I think we all have to remember, and I'm sure uh, Bill Riley remembers this, when George H.W. Bush ran for president, he said, we're going to fight the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. Can you imagine any of the Republican candidates running for president saying that now? It's so things have totally changed. Um, and, and fortunately, people are finally getting it, but we've lost a lot of time. And that is just the, the tragedy of it. Uh, we have to wrap it up there. I want to end on a uh, on an upbeat here. We've heard about some of the urgency uh, and the fierceness of science, uh, starting with Lowell Bergman. What gives you hope that that humans will make this transition and, and adapt to climate change in a in a way that's in time? Gives me hope. Um, I'm not sure I have much actually. Um, I think that the challenge that this this presents people with, for instance, just the media world with is really high. If you're talking, if, if you're to believe that there's a, there's a point of no return, where it won't matter what we do. Um, I think that there, there, uh, we have uh, allowed the situation to get to a point where it may, in fact, have to endure uh, tremendous discomfort and maybe disaster before the kind of action that's needed will be taken. Journalists are always half-empty, guys, and I'm speaking as, as one. I'm, I'm there, right there with you. Uh, Bill well, I'm, I'm used to people ignoring my story. So, so. <laughs> Bill Riley? You know, my own history in the field of the environment gives me a lot of confidence that we're going to address this problem. If you look at the situation that the country and much of the, certainly the developed world, confronted 40 years ago, it's vastly different. The quality of the air, the quality of the water, the fish return to streams. There's so many measures by which you can say. Um, the culture did get together. Uh, I think particularly the youth, had a, who are no longer the youth, many of them, many of us were young once, uh, <laughs> really did have a great success story in our past, a success story of the environment. And so did other places. 
And I think building upon that, building upon some of the agreements that have been reached, the history of agreements internationally on important environmental questions, such as the one to protect the ozone layer, is you start small and you move beyond. And the next time we reconsider that treaty, I can almost assure you it will go further. We will know more. There will be better technology. We'll have more experience with pricing and other alternatives. And I think we will address the problem. Stan Glanz. Well, I got involved in the tobacco issue when you could still smoke in elevators. And when Benson and Hedges, the first ultra-long cigarette, had a national ad campaign, it was a running gag about the door closing on the cigarette. And we're now in a world where, I mean, that is, when you tell that to students today, they look at you like you're crazy. I think there's been tremendous progress made on the environment, too, when you, when you look back. I think that the, the one thing that's very scary, which, which Lowell mentioned, is I think, and, and, and also Ken, is we're getting into some nonlinear effects. And, you know, the question is, will people figure this out fast enough before we have a complete disaster? But I think the public is way ahead of the politicians. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the Citizens United and the dominance of the political process by big money is a huge problem. And, you know, I'm just hoping that in those lawsuits, the, the energy industry documents come out because the, do, the tobacco documents have made a huge difference in changing the discussion and forcing the companies to behave differently and making it harder for the politicians to do their bidding. So I think it's very scary. But, you know, when right now we're living in a world that 30 or 40 years ago, on a lot of these issues would have been viewed as impossible. So I'm hopeful. And the lawyers will save us. Okay, Ken Kimmel, you're a lawyer. Um, uh, I don't know if the lawyers gives- will save us, but what gives me hope is uh, I, I was in Paris. I was, I was privileged to be there, and I saw 195 countries, basically the entire world, agree on a course of action. I believe that is the first time in human history that that's happened. That gives me hope. Uh, it also gives me tremendous hope to see uh, just how much the price of renewable energy has fallen to the point where it is really within striking distance of being competitive with fossil fuels, and that's obviously critical. Um, But at the same time, uh, everything hangs in the balance, right down to the fact that we have apparently four judges of the Supreme Court who seem inclined to strike down the clean power plan and four who are going to seem designed to preserve it. Uh, An election coming up, we don't know how that's going to turn out. So... um, I, I, I feel energized by Paris and by the economics, but this has a huge question mark. And what, we, what happens politically in the next five to ten years, I think, is going to decide whether we're going to uh, stem the worst effects of climate change or whether the Paris Agreement is going to get stalled right out of the gates. And I think we don't know the answer to that yet. So stay tuned to Climate One to find out how it goes down. Uh, we have to end it there. Ken Kimmel is president of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Our other guests today at Climate One have been Bill Riley, administrator of the US EPA under the first President Bush, Lowell Bergman, professor of journalism at UC Berkeley, and Stan Glanz, who's a professor at UCSF. I'm Greg Dalton. You can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One. I'd like to thank our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and online and on air. Thank you all, and thanks to our guests for joining us today. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The 
Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.